to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. We will continue our course through Isaiah 40 through 66 um, until probably uh, the first Sunday in June when we are planning to have an intern. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, the Crockfords have an extra vehicle, and they're going to let Andrew, the intern, uh, drive his uh, vehicle around that summer, or this summer. So we're really appreciative of that. And uh, uh, so things are kind of coming together for the intern, and we're grateful for that. He's from New Hampshire. And as uh, is our custom, uh, when we have interns, I turn over adult Sunday school to the intern. And it's the intern, uh, the intern will work on his lessons through the week, and part of um, my help to him is to help him in the development of those lessons, and we give, uh, we, we work on them ahead of time, and then after they're done uh, teaching, uh, we, have a, we have a review. Uh, we talk about things that went well, or maybe things that could be improved. One of the best ways that God's people can help interns is to listen with their eyes uh, when the intern is speaking. Uh, it, it's, um, it's a real encouragement to a young man when he's teaching, whether he's teaching well or maybe not so well, to have God's people encouraging him along that way. Uh, teaching is a hard thing to do, and it's not, uh, it's not natural or intuitive to most people. And the the thing that makes teaching the easiest is when you have listeners that make it really easy on you. And so, um, uh, as God's people, you know, um, one of our great jobs, one of our, our great responsibilities is to train up pastors so that our kids have somebody to have, you know, so that our kids have spiritual leaders. You know what I mean? Um, and there's this constant turning over of, uh, of spiritual responsibility, this constant discipleship. And so you play an important role in that, in encouraging uh, uh, the intern, and one of the ways you can really do that is when he teaches to be as encouraging as you can be. We've had some interns uh, that are uh, very gifted speakers, um, and then some that have really, are really, just by virtue of their gifting, really need to work at it. And so, um, whatever, I, I haven't heard Andrew teach yet, so um, whatever the case is with him, I'm sure there will be room for improvement, and I'm sure uh, that you guys will do a great job in encouraging him uh, along his journey. But until he begins teaching, we're going to continue our journey through Isaiah 50, or uh, through Isaiah 40 through 66, and today we arrive at chapter 50. Now, because it's been a while since we were in Isaiah, let's remind ourselves of where we are historically. Because getting ourselves aligned historically is important to understanding exactly what the Lord is trying to tell these people. The Lord ha is coming to them during a time of prosperity. Hezekiah is the king, and he's a good king, and the nation is prospering. But with that prosperity has come spiritual lethargy. The people are insensitive to the Lord. Maybe they're taking the Lord for granted. They're allowing bits of sin into the nation. They're 
um, it's good times for sure, but zeal is waning in the land. And that waning zeal is going to play a big role moving forward. After Hezekiah, there are only a few good kings. And the spiritual temperature of the people, if you're following the Dow Jones um, you know, markers, it, it, they have blips that go up, but they've just been kind of steadily going down. And eventually, these people are going to come under the judgmental hand of God. And that judgment is going to be very severe. God talks about that judgment in this chapter, which we'll see in just a minute. But that judgment isn't going to be forever. In fact, he tells us in a different portion of the Bible, he tells us in the book of Jeremiah, which will come a little bit later, but he tells us that the judgment is going to last 70 years. There's this initial nuclear bomb that goes off in their nation, and the people are deported. And once they land as a displaced people, God says, really, you can have a peaceful, prosperous, temporary stay away. And for 70 years, I want you to prosper in the nation I'm sending you to. Plant vineyards, plant gardens. Make the best of those 70 years. Don't chafe against this. It'll be 70 years, no more, no less. And then I'm bringing you back. And when I bring you back, there will be great joy. There will be great singing. In fact, he's going to talk about that in our passage here. Okay? So let's take a snapshot. Let's take just a quick view of that sort of over history. Okay? What chapter 50 is preparing the people for is that initial disaster. Chapter 50 is preparing the nation for the worst of times. Okay? Now, I don't want to be morbid, but I think it would be good for us to brainstorm a little bit about these sorts of moments in our lives that are defining division-type moments. Okay? There's everything in your life before this moment and there's everything in your life after this moment okay so what i'd like us to do is just take a few moments to brainstorm over what some of those moments are okay i i've jotted down a few of them that i brainstormed over but what i mean is not not false news that you kind of get over very quickly. But this is real news. It's a real event that changes your life, changes your outlook, changes your family dynamic forever. Okay? Here's one of those. You get a phone call, and they say, there's been an accident, and you need to come to the hospital right away. That's a moment, right? And you got to get to the hospital. Maybe even at the hospital you're told, 
despite our best efforts, so-and-so did not make it. And there's everything in your life up to that moment, and there's everything in your life from that moment. Right? Or the doctor says, I need you to come in. We got the results back from the scan. And the doctor flops the results on the screen and says, it's malignant. Okay. There was everything in your life up to that moment, and now your life has just changed irrevocably. And there's everything in your life after that moment. I have a third one. There's an impromptu meeting called in your company, and you're gathered into a room with 100 others, and they say, the company hasn't been doing as well financially as we'd hoped. Tomorrow, an earnings report will be released that present a pretty grim picture. And all of you no longer have a job here. On the way out the door, you'll be given a piece of paper that outlines your severance package. And there's security guards waiting for you to help you clean out your desk and leave. That happens, doesn't it? That's everything, your life before that moment, and then everything after that moment. What are some others? Yes, Dirk. Immigrating to the United States, yes. There was your life before you came, and then there was your life after you got here. Yeah, that's good. What else? Going into the military. <laughs> you know, that's not an experience I've had, but I can imagine, you know, they're very kind and nice to you, and then you get off that bus, and suddenly life has changed. What else? Yes. Yeah, that's right. A birth or a marriage? That's right. What else? Yes, Heather. Oh, yeah. Yep, you come to, and the doctor has to report that hopes were not fulfilled in that surgery. What else? Yes. <laughs> moving. Yeah. These are more destructive type events, and we would hope that moving to Utah is more blessed. Though I know we can be a little rough and ready, so... Yes, Joe. The snow load breaks your roof. That, you know, I know a guy that that happened to. <laughs> the snow load breaks your roof. There was everything after that moment that Danielle said, Greg, there's something you need to come look at. <laughs> Which usually means something pretty minor, to be honest, but in that case it was not. Any others? Okay. Let's look and see the types of things that God is talking about here. So I had to turn in Isaiah to chapter 50. Go down to verse 17. And I want us to just look 
I'm sorry, I said 50. I meant 51. I meant 51. Go down to verse 17 of chapter 51. Let's talk about the things God is referring to here. He says in verse 17, we're talking about the cup of God's wrath. And he says, and you will drink it down to the dregs. He says that you have suffered two things in verse 19. Who will console you? You've suffered devastation and destruction, and you've suffered famine and the sword. He goes on to say in verse 20 that your sons, the enemy has invaded the city, and your sons have been captured by the enemy like antelope in a net. And Ancient peoples did not catch antelope in nets to let them go. These were men who were captured, interrogated, and killed. He says that that the bowl of that this is the bowl of my wrath. He says that the people are in a daze, they're in a stupor. They're people who are afflicted, and they go around staggering like they're drunk, even though they're not drunk. Maybe you've said it this way, upon receiving the news of one of the things we just talked about here, you've said, I feel like I'm in a fog, or I feel like I'm in a daze. I feel like the days are just melting away, and I can't seem to get my feet on the ground. Have any of you said that ever about yourselves? That's what the Lord is saying here. You're in a stupor, you're in a daze, it's like you're drunk, though you're not intoxicated. This news has utterly knocked you off your feet, and it's terrible news. Uh, it's news that is absolutely devastating. And it's a, it's a gory picture that the Lord is painting here, but everything in this chapter up to that point is preparation for that moment. And what God is doing in verses 1 through 16, and also in some in 17 through 21, is trying to prepare you to keep your feet on the ground when that moment comes. Now, all of us have had moments like that, and all of us will have more. All of us will have events that change the course of our lives. You don't get to choose what they are. You don't get to choose when they come. They will hit you. Jesus says, in this life, you will face tribulation. Therefore, God is giving us advice ahead of time so that when that devastating news comes, when that event takes place, we'll be prepared and we'll be ready to keep our feet on the ground. And the first thing I want you to notice is that God wants us, he gives us three points here, the three themes kind of, work our way through this passage. The first thing is to carefully observe the works of God. Carefully observe the works of God. Now he talks at first about the past works of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 51. When this event hits you, when you feel like you're knocked off your feet, when you feel like you can't catch your breath, God says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, 
and to the quarry from which you were dug. Notice that what God is saying here, I, I, I worded that carefully, carefully observed. We're told to both listen and look. Use your ears, use your eyes. He says it a couple of different times, and he goes back and forth. Look at the way he words this. Listen to me. Look to the rock. Look to Abraham. He goes down and he says, uh, for the Lord comforts. Uh, go down to verse 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. Go down to verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heaven and look at the earth beneath. Go down to verse 7. Listen to me. It's repeated over and over again, often back and forth. Take careful note of what the Lord has been doing. Carefully observe it. Listen and look. We're supposed to observe carefully the past works of God. Look at verses 1 and 2 where God tells us to go all the way back to the beginning. He says, I want you to look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. <coughs> now this is, this is even when Hezekiah is writing it, ancient literature. <coughs> this is at least, let's see here, this is probably a millennia later. And he's saying, I want you to look back at the dealings that I've had with my people. I made Abraham and Sarah a promise. Now, they had to wait many years for that promise to be fulfilled. But it was fulfilled, and it was dramatic, and you, you yourselves, are the um, fulfillment of that promise. I told a man who was in his 90s and a woman who was in her 80s that they would have as many children as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. And they would have given their lives for one. And I gave them one. And that turned into you guys that I'm talking to now. And it's the fulfillment of this promise. God says, I'm making promises to you. I'll, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Uh, I, I will always provide for you. Uh, you will be safe from the fowler's net. I make you these promises and I want you to look back at even the most unlikely promises that I made in the scripture, and I want you to see how they were fulfilled to the letter, and that will give you hope that your situation is well in my hand. Okay? Look carefully to the former things that God has done. He says, I want you to look to the mighty works of God. Let's go down to verses 10 and 11. He says, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. He says, I want you to go back and look and see what I did when I brought my children across the, um, when I brought my children across the uh, um, Red Sea. Go back and he says, was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces? That's probably referring to Jericho, when the walls of Jericho fell. fell. And then he says something that commentators throw their hands up on and say, we have no idea what this means. When it says, and who pierced the dragon? Nobody, nobody knows what that means. Although my 11-year-old daughter would very much hold out the possibility that there are dragons in this world and they used to exist. Because she would love nothing better than to know that they were real dragons. Um, 
And so we're not sure what that meant. But apparently the people who read this for the first time understood what he was referring to. And it was a past act of God that he wanted them to, um, that he wanted them to remember. He says, listen to the Lord. Uh, listening, verse 1, he says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Listening is the same thing, it's tantamount, to seeking the Lord. How, how do you, how do you, if, if you're a, if you're a lower-ranking officer in the army, and you're trying to understand what the higher-ranking officer wants you to do, what do you do? Well, you listen to what he has to say. You listen to what she has to say, or you read your orders carefully, and you parse out what you, what exactly you're supposed to do, and when the military gives you orders, they don't spell out for you every last detail that's supposed to occur within that mission. That's your job to figure out. You accomplish the mission by exercising all the authority that you have over the people that you have, and you fulfill what you're supposed to do. Seeking the Lord is much the same way. We listen to what he has to say. We read what he has to say. We marshal all of our resources underneath of us, and we try to execute what God wants. And that's listening and um, pursuing are, are one and the same, seeking, trying to fulfill what the Lord has for us. God says, I want you to listen to me because everybody the world over, verse 4, is going to listen to me. And then he says something really interesting in verse 7. He says, now, listen. When an event happens, other people are going to talk. And when that happens, you have to decide who you're going to listen to. Decide ahead of time to listen to me and not to man. Don't listen to the reproach of man. Look down at verse 7. Listen to me you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. There will be contrary advice that seems right to man. There will be a way of worldly thinking that seems good to them. And truth be told, things might temporarily get a little smoother for you if you listened to that and took it to heart. But God says, don't listen to the advice of scoffers. Don't give it any attention. Don't pay attention to it. Listen to me. Listen to my word. Listen to my righteousness. That's how you find comfort. That's how you get your feet on the ground in a crisis. An example. Had a situation where somebody had been deeply betrayed. Somebody had been deeply betrayed. There was advice that this person was getting from spiritual people. And then there was advice that this person was getting from unspiritual people. 
the advice that they were getting from unspiritual people involved revenge, expressions of anger and hate, and abandoning, a putting behind. And all of those in the moment would have confirmed that person's feelings. But it just so happened that none of that is what God wanted. And so when, when a crisis comes to you, people aren't going to come to you, the, the ones that are giving you fleshly, evil, wicked advice, they're not coming to you with a sign on their shirt that says, don't listen to this advice. <laughs> it will have a ring of perverse human logic to it. And you have to be very prepared to listen to the right person and carefully observe what God is telling you. All right, number two. What are some of the other things God is suggesting here when a devastating event occurs? Number two, he says, find comfort in God and in God alone. Find comfort in God and in God alone. When these sorts of devastating events come on us, there's always a lot of ups and downs, aren't there? There's seemingly great news that comes in a moment and hope is offered. And then as soon as that's offered, it seems like it's taken away. And then it seems like devastate, the news is even more devastating than you thought, but then that quickly changes. There's this constant up and down. Think, think, about, think about Ruth, okay? The, the story of Ruth and Boaz. She's married her husband dies, there's a famine, she goes home, she's a beggar. It, devastating, life-altering news. Ah, but there's a nice guy, a godly man, and he wants to marry her. She's exultant, but there's somebody else who's closer and has the right to take her. What if she doesn't like him? What if he's ugly? What if he has a crooked nose? <laughs> what if he's a terrible, ungodly man? What if? And Ruth has to go home and work through those what-ifs, doesn't she? Well, when we're going through a crisis, there's going to be these ups and downs, these ebbs and flows, and if you, if you get taken away by them, you're going to ride a roller coaster. You're going to ride a roller coaster anyway, but the roller coaster will be even worse. So school yourself, as God advises here, on finding comfort in God and in God alone. You can do this, verse 12 and verse 14, because it's God's great desire to comfort you. Okay? God wants to comfort you. Look at verse 12. Notice the language. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. I, I am he who comforts you. Perhaps some of you moms had uh, your, your, your husband made you breakfast in bed this morning. Let's say your husband made you breakfast in bed. And, or you had breakfast waiting on the counter. That'll help my illustration a little bit more. Breakfast is waiting. You wake up, and there's breakfast waiting. And your, the lady says, 
who made this? And the husband says, I, I am he. <laughs> well, you would say, well, he really wanted to be recognized. <laughs> it was very important to him that he get recognized for what he did. Well, that's what the Lord is doing here in a sense. He's, he's overemphasizing it so that it gets our attention. I want to be the one to comfort you. I, I am he. Don't look to anybody else. Verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. God is, God is coming uh, to serve you and help you, and he's reassuring you that he is capable of great comfort. It's God who stirs up the waves so that they roar. It's God who covers you in the shadow of his hand. The rains and the storms are, are flooding down and around you and over you, and, and God, in a sense, is supporting you from below, and he's covering you from above so that you don't get overwhelmed and inundated. He wants to comfort. He wants to help. But he's not like us in the sense that much of his comfort is in desire only. How many times have we told loved ones or friends, if I could take this pain away from you, I would. If I could help you, I would. If I could make this go away, I would. We're incapable, we're powerless, but God is powerful, God is mighty. And God is using this trial to shape you, to draw you to him. But that trial, he is in utter control of. God's trial is a river that never gets out of its banks. It's a machine that never misbehaves. It will accomplish exactly what he intended it to accomplish, no less, no more. Trials, evil people, all of these in the end, are servants of God to accomplish his purposes. And he's promising comfort and joy through all of that. God promises future comfort, joy, and salvation to the exclusion of all else. Look at verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden and her deserts like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Get on to verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Or verse 11. The ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So, God wants us to look to him who offers comfort both now and in the future. And it's his desire to be the one to comfort you. Now, so, when a crisis comes, number one, God advises us to carefully observe all the works of God. Number two, to find comfort in God alone 
and try not to allow circumstances to sweep you along for the roller coaster ride that circumstances create. Find your comfort in God and, and in the rock. Circumstances be what they be. Okay. The third thing God wants us to do is to fear the right thing. Okay, fear the right thing. There is a good fear, and there's a bad fear. Um, every year when we get the staff for Pioneer Bible Camp, or we, you know, we get kids coming in from out of state to visit Utah, I like to take them to a certain spot. It's a beautiful overlook up near Snow Basin. And we go to this little cliff. Many of you have been there with me before, and it's a cliff, and it's a sheer drop-off, and if you were to go over the edge, that would be that for you. You would not come back from that. There is an appropriate fear that keeps you a certain distance away from the edge. And then there is an inappropriate fear of the person who won't even go down the little trail to see it because they're so afraid of the edge, they stay way too far back to enjoy the edge. Does that make sense? I don't ask them to do anything dangerous, but they... They get so bound up in their fear, they don't enjoy the experience. They're not, they're not appropriately fearing, okay? And God wants us to fear the right thing. He says, number one, do not fear that which oppresses you. Don't fear those who reproach and revile, verse 8. Don't fear them because they're going to be destroyed by moths and worms, verse 12. Men die, sons of men wither up like the grass, the wrath of the oppressor seems so relevant at the moment, but it's all under God's control, verse 13. Don't be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of what man can do. Man is ultimately powerless. Don't be afraid of somebody who will wind up in the dust. Don't be afraid of somebody. And there's Isaiah's doing something tricky here, okay? Who here genuinely worries that they can be harmed by an earthworm? Anybody? Anybody here worried that you'll be harmed by... Or how many of you are genuinely worried that a moth can do you permanent damage? Anybody? Guess what? You're going to be eaten by worms, okay? The worm will have the last say. <laughs> and your clothes will be claimed by moths, okay, if they're left out. What God is saying is, like, these creatures that you have no fear of they're the ones that will ultimately do you, and that's how powerless man is to keep his ultimate end from occurring to him. He's contrasting this. So, is now there is a person you should fear. Fear God by considering his majesty, verse 13. Have you forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy, where's the wrath of the oppressor? Here God is putting up the contrast. He says, look to God and fear him who made everything and all that is, and stop fearing the one who ultimately can do you no harm. Fear the right person. Okay. Uh, look at verse 15. He says, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. Fear God who 
can accomplish anything his heart sets out to accomplish. Revere, respect, and fear the majesty of God so much that the power of people begins to wane in light of the majesty of God. Okay? So, when a crisis comes, carefully observe the works of God, find comfort in God and God alone, and fear the right person. Fear the right person. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for Isaiah 40 through 66. We pray that um, as we work through these passages, we would see how relevant your word is uh, for us today. Prepare us now for worship, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.